Hey everyone, and welcome to a Soulful Revolution podcast. We're talking today at the intersection of spiritual transformation and social change with my guest, the Reverend Layla King. I'm Lauren Grubaugh Thomas, a priest, writer, spouse, and twin mama living in Littleton, Colorado on the traditional homelands of the Arapaho and Cheyenne peoples. My guest, Layla, is a Palestinian-American Episcopal priest, an advocate of small churches everywhere, and a wife and mother. She served a 13-year tenure as rector of Thankful Memorial in Chattanooga, one of the best small parishes in the Episcopal Church, she says, and she became a founding member of the Small Church's Big Impact Collective and writes about her experiences as a Palestinian, a clergywoman, and a mother at thankfulpriest.com. Layla, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be here. I want to begin by asking you the question I ask all of my guests, which is to invite you to share what it means to you to be a soulful revolutionary. Well, you and I, Lauren, have talked a little bit about this already, but I'm still trying on. That's a that's a phrase that we use a lot in the small church world is this idea of trying things on and seeing how they fit. And I am trying on the term revolutionary. I certainly don't think of myself as a revolutionary. You know, when you contacted me and invited me to be on this podcast, that was the first time anyone had ever suggested that I would call myself a revolutionary. (laughs) Um, So I'm trying that word on. Um, And I think that when you talk about this intersection between social change and spiritual transformation, um, I'm much more comfortable with the spiritual transformation part as an Episcopal priest, that part resonates with me. I'm very much um, in the world of spiritual transformation. I think the social change piece is harder for me and part of what I would have to try on in terms of being a revolutionary, in large part because when we talk about social change in this day and age, there's so many layers of sort of liberal rhetoric that I Mm. have to dig through to get to something that is meaningful to me and that I would consider even trying on. Um, So, you know, I don't see myself as being someone who is part of social change in the way that people often put meaning onto that term. But if we are talking about social change in the sense that um, I am interested in being in relationship with all sorts of people and having open hearts and um, working in people's lives to understand others better and to be understood better by them, then I'm all for social change. Although that to me sounds a lot like spiritual transformation, so I'm not Mm -hmm. entirely sure that those are two different things. Well, that's really the heartbeat of this podcast is to be in the dance between both (laughs) and that we at different moments in our lives find ourselves in this spiritual transformation realm more, but dabbling in social change or that that's an outcome. Um, I often think about it as being rooted in spiritual transformation and is the fruit of that. That, yes, that the way that 100%. I hundred percent I would agree with that. Mm. yeah, I am I'm focused on the spiritual transformation and I leave the social change to God. I mean, mm. I leave it all to God, but um I I would agree with you that if social change is the fruit of the spiritual transformation, then I am all there for it. Mm. But I do think that it's important that we come at it from that direction. If we come at it, 
from the social change direction and it's missing, it's lacking the foundation of spiritual transformation and of being in relationship with one another and of um, focusing our efforts on creating the kingdom of God on earth, um, then I think it it really lacks meaning and it really doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't, social change doesn't happen if it's not rooted as you, to use the term you, you did, which I think works really well, if it's not rooted in that sense of um, tradition and faith and, you know, deep spiritual uh, connection, not just with God, but with each other. Mm. I've heard you share some of your family's story as a person of Palestinian descent, as a Palestinian American, you've shared your story. Mm. And I'm curious if you could share here on the podcast, how, that rootedness in faith and in relationship anchors you right now as a Palestinian American. Could you share some of your story with us today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my mother is Palestinian. Um, and so I'm actually half Palestinian, like many of us in this generation. We're sort of a lovely mix of beautiful ethnicities. So I'm half Palestinian. My dad was half Irish and half Croatian. So that's my ethnic makeup. But I certainly identify with the I really call myself a Palestinian American, whereas I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Croatian American in large part because my grandmother, my mother's mother, was one of nine siblings. She died in 2016. She was one of nine siblings, eight girls and a boy, and seven of those siblings, so my grandmother, five of her sisters, and her brother all lived within about a 15-minute radius of our house when I was growing up in Houston. And they had children and grandchildren, and now at this point, great-grandchildren, and we were a big family. And I saw my Palestinian family at least once a week, like the whole extended family would mm. gather at one of my great aunt's houses on a Sunday after church. And uh, I would see them all, all like we would have 50 people regularly on a Sunday morning on a weekly basis. So I really grew up in that culture, although I didn't actually understand it to be that culture, uh, a Palestinian culture until I was much older, until I was a teenager, um, which is itself a funny story, but I won't get into that here. But my grandmother was um, born in Haifa in Palestine in 1928. So it was at the time that Palestine was a British mandate after World War I. Um, she met my grandfather in the Anglican church choir of their local Anglican church. They had actually grown up together in the church. My, both my grandparents were devout Anglicans throughout generations before them, and they uh, were engaged in the early days of 1947, and then they were married on January 3rd, 1948. And if you know your history, um, the Nekba, which is what the Palestinians call the creation of Israel, the Nekba um, happened on May 15th, 1948. My grandparents were married just a couple of months before the Nekba happened. Mm -hmm. They took a honeymoon to Cairo, and by the time they came back, um, my grandmother was already pregnant with my mother. And from then on, for the next couple of months, their life was pretty hellish. Um, the Zionist militiamen, um, they were called militias, but um, my grandparents really experienced them as terrorists. The Zionist terrorists would 
um, shoot people. They would throw explosives into neighborhoods, into Muslim and Christian neighborhoods. They would destroy homes. They would rape women. And all of this was done under the eye, the sort of blind eye of the British mandate, because the British were very much a part of this Zionist movement. So my my grandparents fled in April of 1948. My grandmother was four months pregnant with my mother. They were newlyweds. They fled in fear of their lives, really. They fled with uh, one suitcase between them, all of my grandmother's jewelry and the cash that they could carry. My grandfather worked for a British grocery store catering company called Spinney's, and Spinney's had a cargo ship that was um, docked in the port at Haifa. And my grandparents were two of many refugees, Palestinian refugees, who boarded that ship on that day because it was already bound for Beirut. So it was meant to be a cargo sh ship, but it was really filled with people. Mm -hmm. um, and they took this boat ride. And for some reason, I don't know why, it took two nights, two overnights, although you wouldn't think it would take that long to get to Beirut. But um, they they took this boat trip to Beirut. While they were on the boat, they didn't have any food. Remember, my grandmother was four months pregnant. Um, it was mm. her first child. She was seasick, um, severely seasick. She was very, very cold. And in the middle of one of the day in between, they had built sort of a second level, a temporary second level in the hold of the ship so that they could fit more people on. And my grandparents were at the very bottom of the ship, and they didn't realize that the ceiling overhead was actually a temporary ceiling. It, it was like a makeshift ceiling. They just thought it was the, the ceiling of the, of the hold. But there was uh, there were all these people above them, and they didn't realize that. And at one point in time, uh, this woman fell through this makeshift ceiling and the board that fell down and the woman basically fell on top of my grandfather and knocked him out cold. Um, and in that moment, my grandmother told me that she was terrified. She mm -hmm. was, she thought, this is it. I don't know where I'm going in Beirut. I don't know if I'll ever get back to my home. And my husband has just died. I mean, she literally wow. thought he had just been killed um, and she was terrified and she said she just prayed to God to help her out of the situation because she didn't know what else to do. Just so that listeners aren't too concerned, my grandfather did wake up and they made it to Beirut. They began their life as refugees in Beirut, which is a whole nother story. I once read that a fetus, a female fetus in the womb, already has all the eggs she will ever produce in her lifetime in her ovaries. I often think of that when I learned that fact, I really clung to it because I often think back to that moment when my grandmother's on the hold of this ship and she's absolutely terrified. And beneath the terror is this faith that says when you have nothing left to pray. And I think of her and her terror and her faith and within her body is my mother's body. And within my mother's body is this little tiny ovary that will one day be me, mm. sort of like a series of Russian dolls. And I just imagine the terror 
but also the deep faith that my grandmother fell back onto really just seeping into me and being carried in my very DNA um, to this day. And I, I really credit that moment with my sense of faith and my priesthood. It really goes back all those years ago, all those decades ago to that moment as the very start and the seed of it. Wow. So often the traumas and right. the gifts of past generations, I think are greatly underestimated. Right. Right. And you know, there's this emergent science of epigenetics that's telling us that we carry the traumas of our ancestors in our DNA. Yes. And I have yes. to believe the blood that's true of blessing too, that yes. both that we carry that legacy of love and faith with us also, yes. all that is carried in our, not just in our imaginations, but in our bodies. Yes. I think that's so true. And the more I have grown and the more experiences I have, and with the help of a good therapist, as I'm able to be aware of how I respond both emotionally and physically and spiritually to the different experiences, be they good or bad, that I have in my life, I can see in my responses how much of those responses are really part of the generational trauma and the generational joy that has been handed down to me. If we go back to the original conversation, maybe that's part of what makes me a revolutionary. I wonder how your history, your sense of story as it connects to your family story and to this lineage of of faith and of suffering, how that then affects the way that you're engaging with the recent events that are happening, that are unfolding with the October 7th attacks in Israel by Hamas, and then the unfolding genocide that we are seeing in Gaza. How do you approach what is going on as, as a Palestinian, as someone who has seen in your lifetime and through your family story, going back to 1948, the the suffering and the violence that Palestinians have experienced for such a long time. Yeah, it's really hard to be a Palestinian American. It has always been hard to be a Palestinian American. It is especially hard, I think, to be a Palestinian American since October 7th. And there's a couple of reasons why. One reason is that certainly throughout my lifetime, I'm sure my mother's lifetime too, the narrative that is told in the U.S. about Israel is a false narrative. I mean, I don't know what else to call it. That's just the facts. right? Um, the narrative that was told even before uh, Israel was created was a false narrative. The, the tagline for the Zionist movement was a land without a people for a people without a land, meaning the U European Jews were a people without a land, and that the the geographical region of Palestine was a land without a people. But of course, there were very many people in the land of Palestine. Um, and so the very the very impetus of Zionism is based on misinformation, disinformation. It's just false. It's just untrue. And the story, the narrative that gets told about Israel in the U.S. forever has been that Israel is the U.S.'s ally and that Israel is a victim of all the Arab states that surround it. And that's just patently false. 
Israel is our the U.S.'s ally, but it's the U.S.'s ally at the expense of the Palestinian people against whom Israel continues to have violent acts that Israel as a state, as a government, Israel has killed thousands, arrested probably hundreds of thousands for no reason at this point. Palestinians live in an apartheid state. Their land is constantly being confiscated by Israeli settlers or by the government. They're being destroyed. Um, And so the genocide that we have been seeing happening since October 7th has just sped up. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just been sped up since October 7th. But Israel has had a sort of agenda of genocide. It's just been a very slow, a much slower genocide of the Palestinian people up until this point. Um, After October, so it's always been hard to be a Palestinian American and to hold that space and to know that one's own people are being violated with our tax dollars, Mm -hmm. you know, with our with our money and with our blessing. It's been even harder since October 7th um, because we see that so viscerally and so violently happening now and the rhetoric we get from our government is so horrific and horrendous. The fact that the congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, was uh, censured for just speaking out um, for her own people and criticizing Israel is, I would say, unbelievable, except that it's not in this country. And so it's been very hard, so hard to see the genocide of one's people And to feel as though one's own country is silencing my own right to speak out against that. Um, It's also hard in this country when you're a Palestinian Christian, Mm. because it is such a travesty that there is so much ignorance in this country about the existence of Palestinian Christians. Like so many people I talk to don't even know that Palestinian Christians exist. And so the education that I have to do on a daily basis of people is just awful. And I am hopeful because here we are having this conversation. Hopefully all your listeners now know, if they didn't before, that there are such things as Palestinian Christians and that Palestinian Christians go back to the first church, right? The the first Christians were Palestinian Christians. They were they were Arabs of that region um, who were... So like at Pentecost, when all those people are gathered who are not ethnic Jews, but are ethnic other folk from that region, those are Arabs. And mm-hmm. those people are the first Arab Christians. Jesus himself was an Arab Jew, one might say, this is who makes up the 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 first Christians are our pa- Palestinian our Arab Christians and it's really important that we know that and that we prioritize their voice especially in these times of crisis mm. I so appreciate you naming that because there is such a strong narrative of Christian Zionism in this country yeah and I wonder if you could say more about, Christian Zionism and what Christian Zionism has to say about Palestinians um, or not say, as you've mentioned, and how, how does that get 
counteracted? Like what, what you've you've named the importance of uplifting simply the existence of Palestinian Christians as a start. Yes. Um, I think that often progressive Christians, people who care deeply about justice, don't even know where to begin because these narratives are so pervasive. The with the with the underlying messaging being you're anti-Semitic if you're not pro-Israel. Yeah, those are some. Um, let's start by unpacking some of those terms because mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. So um, when we talk about Israel, I want to be very clear that at least in this conversation, the modern day state of Israel has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Israel. They are not the same thing. They are nowhere close to the same thing. They are completely different entities. And so I think we have to start there. The people who are the closest thing to ancient Israel, biblical Israel, would be the Arab Jews that have long lived in that region, but they lived alongside of, since Christ's birth and death and resurrection, those Arab Jews lived alongside of Arab Christians. And after Muhammad came and left um, alongside Arab Muslims, right? So these three religions, as well as some others, have existed together, not only in tolerance, but in harmony, mm-hmm. um, really relying on each other as neighbors do. In one village, for example, my great-grandmother came from a village called Shefa Amar, which is not very far from Haifa. Um, and in my great-grandmother's village, there were Christians and Jews and Muslims and Druze and other religions that lived together as neighbors. And when there was a Muslim holiday, the whole town would celebrate the Muslim holiday together. When there was a Jewish holiday, the whole town would celebrate the Jewish holiday and the same for all the other religions. So it's so I think what um, is really important to understand is that this is not a religious war. This is not a conflict that has anything to do with religion. This is a conflict that is solely political. It is about power grabs and land grabs and resource grabs and people in power wanting to maintain the power for themselves. It is about oppression and colonialism. It is not about religion. So I think that that is really important probably the most important thing to understand. So when we're talking about Israel today, we're not talking about biblical Israel. We are talking about the occupying force that stole land from Palestinians who were already living there um, and kicked them out. In many cases, violently kicked them out using terrorist tactics. Now, I think history has reached a point where Israel is here to stay there will always be an Israel. And most rational people you talk to, uh, Palestinians, whatever their background is, understands that Israel is here to stay. But there also has to be a place for Palestinians, for Palestinian people to live in dignity um, with full human rights. And how we get there is a whole nother question. But I think it's really important that the first step to getting there is to end the occupation, to end the apartheid system that operates in Israel now, and to end the killing of Palestinians indiscriminately. The narrative of 
ancient Israel being one and the same as modern Israel is a huge part of how Christian, the Christian Zionist narrative. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, And, you know, I think there is this like weird, I mean, and all of this is based off of poor interpretation of the biblical scriptures, right? A, A lot, I think of Christian Zionism comes from this poor interpretation of like revelation and some other portions of the scriptures, although mostly revelation that somehow when Jews get back to the Holy land, that Christ's second coming will come. And that's just a, that's an uninformed interpretation of revelation. And anyone who um, studies the Bible studies, um, studies revelation studies these texts with the context and knowledge of who they were written for and and how they were written and why they were written knows that and understands that pretty quickly but the the dominant story that gets told in more evangelical fundamentalist religions is based on this really wrong really poor interpretation of scripture and it has led to the murder and genocide of Palestinian people with the backing of these Christian Americans, Christians in the West who do not understand what's happening. I wonder what are some of the misunderstandings that you want to clear up. There, I'm sure there's many. Yeah. <laughs> and you've already mentioned some, but but in terms of misconceptions that Christians in the West specifically have of Palestinians and and of the situation at hand for the last 75 years, what are some of the major themes that folks need to unlearn? So one, that Palestinian Christians exist, right? We've already touched on that one. And that they are a vibrant part of the fabric of society in the Holy Land. And as a Christian, if you are listening to this and you are yourself a Christian, we are called to prioritize our brothers and sisters in Christ in that place. It is a demand of our faith to hear their voices and really prioritize their voices. And I can't state that enough. Another thing I will say is that I want us to be very careful when we use the word anti-Semitic or Semitic at all, because Arabs are a Semitic people. We are the same ethnic group as Semitic Jews as ethnic Jews. If you look at a Palestinian or or an ethnic Jew, you can see it in our faces. I mean, we're very much the same. There was a, I remember there was a picture of someone had like AI created a, a picture of Jesus and how he would have looked. Um, and he had sort of brown skin and a and dark hair and a beard and his eyes were very sort of Mediterranean they had this Mediterranean look and I was just scrolling through my Facebook feed one day and I just scrolled past this picture and I 100% thought that it was my cousin Joseph like 100% (laughs) and I had to scroll back and I was like oh that why is Joseph like why is he why is Joe like dressed in some funny garment so I had to scroll back and I was like oh my gosh it's not Joseph it's uh this AI created creation of what Jesus would have looked like Again, we are Semitic people too. Now, I understand that when people use the term anti-Semitic, they are not using it properly. And now this term has come to mean anti-Jewish. And that's okay. We can continue to learn to use that term in that way. But I, I want us to understand that Jews and Palestinians and Arabs are 
the same people, the same ethnic group. We started this conversation talking about spiritual transformation. Yeah. And I want to give you an opportunity as as a priest and as a person of faith to talk about your theology that gives you hope, that inspires you to work toward justice in the face of really insurmountable odds and horrific violence. What what theology, what beliefs about God allow you to, to keep moving forward and, and to keep pushing for a different kind of future? That's a really great question. And the first word that springs to mind for me is forgiveness. And I think that's really hard. I think it is really, really hard. I I wrote an article for a Christian blog called Grow Christians a little while ago, and the editor asked me to, to write a little bit about how you talk to children about what's happening in Palestine and Israel now. And when I boiled it down and I sat down at my computer and I tried to start writing that article and it seemed a little bit impossible. What came to mind is this idea that we know very well in the church and in our society and uh, psychology that hurt people hurt people. That when you have been hurt, it is almost a natural instinct to hurt back. And a lot of times because you can't hurt the same person that hurt you, that impetus, that impulse to hurt takes effect in other ways and to other people who are really innocent in the situation. And I think we see that multiplied exponentially in so many ways in the Holy Land until today right? Mm -hmm. Even if you go back to the earliest moments of the Zionist movement, it came out of European Jews being absolutely vilified and violated in Europe. Mm -hmm. And it's no wonder that they wanted something better for themselves. And because they were not in a position of power in Europe to hurt the ones who were hurting them, I think it turned into, you know, a people without a land for a land without a people, except that there were people in that land. And the people in Europe who were so hurting just didn't care about hurting the people in the land that they had their eyes on. And then that great hurt is done to the Arabs in in, in Palestine and they try to hurt back, right? And it's this vicious, violent cycle that escalates and escalates and escalates until you get to the point where Hamas is done with the amount of hurt that has been inflicted on Palestine and inflicts it back on total innocents who, in many cases, were pro-Palestinian, right? (laughs) I mean, many of the people that they killed and attacked and took as hostages were pro-Palestinian Israeli Jews. And then Israel hits back by obliterating the Palestinians. So it's just this awful cycle of violence and pain and hurt and revenge. And the only way to shut it down is to forgive. Mm. And that is a huge ask. It is a huge ask of people who have been so awfully 
hurt in such violent ways. At Thankful at my old parish, we did multiple sort of studies about forgiveness over the 13 years I was there. And it's not easy. I I know for a fact, because I've been hurt too. And and forgiveness does not come easily to me. And maybe that's part of the generational trauma, right? Forgiveness does not come easily to me. And I also recognize that it is the only way out of cycles of hurt and hate and pain and that we are called to do it. And and along with forgiveness, you know, it is not okay to just say, I forgive you to someone. And there are no consequences for that person's behavior, right? Like in order for forgiveness to happen, you have to have some sort of hope that justice and will ha- will also happen and that truth will be told. Mm. And so so I I am able to forgive only because I have faith in the goodness of God and that in some way at some time the truth will come out and justice will also reign. Um I hope that in my that that will happen in my lifetime. I you know, it seems unlikely, but I will hold on to that hope. Um, and I continue to hold on to that hope. Um, and part of this work that we are doing here is to bring that about, right? I mean, we we can bring about the justice by being truthful in whatever ways we can. So that's part of the work that I am committed to doing. I'm curious to hear for you, what the work looks like right now. Yeah, I think for me right now, I am holding on to some self-knowledge about who I am as a storyteller and, um, and a truth teller, and that those two are coming together in this moment in some pretty important ways. It is one thing to say that Palestinians have been oppressed and violated um, and really tortured by the state of Israel over the past 75 years and then some. That may get some people interested, but mostly it just gets people's defenses up if you use that language. It's another thing to tell my grandmother's story, right? It's another thing to uh, share. I just saw this morning on Facebook um, there's a Palestinian Muslim man who lives in the States. I don't know if he's American himself or not, but lives in the States whose entire family was back in Gaza and has been very publicly posting on his own Facebook page since October 7th, his attempts to get his family out of Gaza. And when that didn't work, um, his attempts to get the bodies of all of his family who were killed in Gaza um, and when that hasn't worked to hold some public prayer services for his family members who have been killed in Gaza by the state of Israel. It's very different to say that there is a genocide happening, that Israel is committing a genocide of the Palestinian people right now. And it's another thing to say, look at this man whose entire family has been wiped out and who has no access to mourn and grieve them. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different things. They're both true. A hundred percent, they're both true. 
But I find that people are much more willing to listen to the stories of humanity mm. that we that we resonate with, that we can see ourselves in, than in these broad sort of brush strokes of what is happening and what the truth is. Mm. There was an article that was printed just recently in The Nation, and it was a piece by a Palestinian attorney who is doing his doctoral work at Harvard. It was written for the Harvard Law Review, and it was ultimately rejected by the editorial board. Mm -hmm. And in it, he makes a a case effectively for Nakba as the legal definition of what is happening the same way that that, that the holocaust became synonymous with genocide yes. the same way that the, the, the south african yes um separation of, of black and white people and the and the oppression of black people became synonymous with apartheid that yes. that word was used there and became universalized he says this word nakba needs to be universalized yeah and what what was especially resonant for me in in hearing you share today your story is that it's one thing to have this universal agreed upon definition of here's what is happening this is the violence here's the definition of what is happening it is nakba and that is important to right. be able to have that and in your story to be able to say, here's what that actually looked like for my grandparents. Yes. And I actually think, you know, much like we talked about at the beginning, um, that if there is social change, that it must be rooted in spiritual transformation. You know, I agree that it it would be the good and meet and right to call what happened in 1948 the Nekba, not the creation of Israel, but the Nekba because of everything that is wrapped up. And for anyone who doesn't know, Nekba is the Arabic term for catastrophe or disaster. Um, but I think to get there, uh, I don't think we can, this is not a top-down type of deal, right? We cannot get there by saying, okay, everyone now call it the Nekba, because no one's going to do that. What we have to do is tell the stories of the Nekba until everyone understands what happened and then calling it the Nekba will be the outcome of that. Mm. Right. Um, so I really think it's got to be more, more grassroots. Um, and I see this, you know, I, I see this all the time in the Episcopal church as a priest. Now uh, I've been involved in a, a number of general conventions over the past nine or 10 years. And there's always Every single year, every single general convention um, that I have been to, there are always numerous resolutions. Um, and for those that don't know, the general convention is the governing body of the Episcopal Church that meets every three years. There are numerous resolutions that call for naming apartheid that as the apartheid that is happening in Palestine, that call for boycotting, divesting, and sanctioning Israel that call for anti-Zionism, uh, an anti-Zionist stance in the Episcopal Church. And every year, without fail, every single one of those resolutions gets voted down. I mean, wow. just nonstop. It never passes. Nothing ever passes. That's always disappointing, but it's never surprising because the Episcopal Church 
has failed to do the education that it needs to be doing of regular people in the pews. As disappointing as those the as the rejection of all those resolutions have been over the years, the most disappointing one that ever happened for me was my first time attending general convention. I was an alternate deputy. And there was a resolution that came through the committees and was debated on the floor of the House of Deputies. And the resolution was as simple and as non-toothed, <laughs> it had no teeth to it, but it was as simple as this, that parishes of the Episcopal Church should be encouraged to study the Kairos-Palestine document. And Lauren, you know what the Kairos-Palestine document is, but um, it was a document that was published in early in the early 2000s, written by the heads of churches, the patriarchs of all the Christian denominations, Catholic and Christian and Orthodox um, denominations in the Holy Land. And it is literally the voice of Palestinian Christians. And the resolution at General Convention was to encourage parishes to study the Kairos-Palestine document. And it was voted down wow. because debate on the floor centered around how it could be viewed as anti-Semitic and that it would be offensive to our Jewish brothers and sisters to study this Kairos-Palestine document. Now, mind you, these are, again... Palestinian Christian voices and the including debate on... I should add from our own Anglican communion exactly churches, churches that are in relationship intimately with the Episcopal exactly Church and historically and exactly and more so than any other resolution having to do with Palestine that is just so consistently voted down that one was the one that hurt mm. and continues to hurt the most because it is this deep unwillingness to even listen to to even hear the Palestinian Christian voice from within our own church. I continue to feel deeply betrayed by that. And, you know, there are there are people today in this church who have implied to me that I shouldn't be speaking so loudly, that by speaking up, that there is something wrong with that. It makes me really angry. And then we get back to this forgiveness tactic, mm. this whole forgiveness thing, <laughs> which is hard for me, but which I'm working on, you know, and how do you navigate that balance between, you know, there's this lovely psalm, which I wish I could tell you the number of, but I can't, uh, that talks about mercy and justice kissing one another. Mm. How do we get there, right? How do we get mercy and justice? Hold on to both of those things at the same time in ways that are authentic and real and lead to a future of hope in the kingdom of God. Hmm. You mentioned the Kairos document, and I wonder yeah. if there are other resources that you would recommend to our listeners. We'll include these, of course, in the show notes, and I'd love to give you an opportunity to share who are those voices that you are most inspired by, who give you hope, who give you direction for the work of ministry that you engage in. I'm sure that someone other than me would be able to give you some really great historical recommendations of what books to read and that sort of thing. But and again, my husband is a church historian, and one of the things that just makes him roll his eyes all the time is how bland I find straight history. Um, so, <laughs> so you're not alone. <laughs> so I 
You're a storyteller. You're like the narrative, right? (laughs) So I'm sure that there are straight histories out there that you can look at. But I resonate better with something that has some narrative, some sort of characters to it. Um, And so my recommendations, aside from the Kairos Palestine document, are going to be more in that vein. So I would encourage listeners to read Palestinian authors, whatever Palestinian, Palestinian American, Palestinian Western, right? But read Palestinian authors. One of my favorites is Ghassan Kanafani. He has, um, he was a short storyist. He was murdered in the civil war in Lebanon by a car bomb, but he has a a small book of short stories called Return to Haifa. It was written in Arabic, but it's translated into English um, and you can find it easily accessible. The titular story in that book is about a Palestinian couple who flees Haifa, much like my own grandparents did. But instead of fleeing to Beirut, they fled to um, one of these refugee camps and then eventually made a life for themselves. And they by a fluke that uh, the story outlines, they ended up leaving their infant son in their home in Haifa. And they return to the home in Haifa after 67 to try and find out what happened to their infant son. Mm. And it is a powerful story. All of the stories in that book are powerful, but especially Return to Haifa. So um, that's one that I would certainly recommend. I would recommend anything by Naomi Shihab Nye, who's actually a Palestinian-American poet. Uh, She's also um, Latina in some way, shape, or form, although I don't know that part of her identity as well. Um, And her, her poetry is just beautiful, as it is. A number of her poems take up Arabic themes, but she's also written a couple of novels, including a children's novel that I would um, encourage folks to read as well. You know, there's a lot of really lovely Arabic films. Um, and if you like look on Netflix or Amazon Prime and just Google Palestinian films that you can watch, I think these are ways into the story, into the history, into the crisis that are much more accessible to people um, and that people can really hear and understand and unpack um, in more productive ways than reading a history. Although you can also do that if that appeals to you. And finally, I'll add um, one of the sort of outcomes of October 7th and what has been happening is that I am finally getting around to writing down the stories that my grandmother told me. I spent a summer after I graduated from college, like with one of those like mini cassette recording tapes. (laughs) And I spent many weeks with my grandmother recording her stories. And that's part of the reason why I know her stories so well. So um, I'm, I had never heard of NaNoWriMo, but maybe some of your listeners have. It's short for National Novel Writing Month. And so I'm trying to write a sort of half novel, half memoir of my grandmother's stories in the month of November. And I'm sort of getting there. But um, so I'm hopeful that those will be available and will someday get published down the line. And yeah, things like that, things that ways 
make all sorts of media that tell the story of the people on the ground is I think the best way to access this. Mm. Thank you for keeping us connected to story and for sharing your story. Yeah. And and for your generosity with your your history and your time and being on the podcast today. It's been a real gift. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of a soulful revolution podcast. You can find Layla's website as well as the resources she shared in the show notes. As always, a soulful revolution is inspired by and entirely made possible by soulful revolutionaries like you. If you'd like to become a paid subscriber, You can find us on Substack. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.